All right, go ahead and get your Bibles and uh, go right to Colossians 1. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. If you're brand new here, welcome. You're jumping right into some stuff. Um, and it's really exciting, and it's way, way too big for us to comprehend. I'd invite you to go back and, and watch maybe some of the previous uh, sermons, because we literally are just picking up on a thought uh, that, that we started last week. We're going to start in Colossians 1, and we're, we're going to start in verse 15. We're going to read to verse 17. Um, if you don't have a Bible, again, I, I say this every Sunday, but we've got free Bibles in the lobby. Please grab one. Um, otherwise, it'll be on the screen for you. Read silently along with me where the Apostle Paul says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. This is the word of God. My youngest daughter just turned two a couple months ago. And if you've never seen Claire running around here, you're missing out. She's probably the cutest kid in the world. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Um, she is the apple of my eye. If you know anything about early childhood development, though, as cute as two-year-olds are, uh, two is crazy. <laughs> they, they call it the terrible twos for a reason. Um, and, and there's something about when they turn two, actually when they turn, I think, 18 months old, that something happens in their development, something happens in their mind, and they start grasping this concept of possession. Uh, the technical, technical term for this stage is the everything is mine stage. <laughs> I'm not making this up. That's actually the technical term, I guess. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't matter who had it first. If a two-year-old wants it, it is theirs. If you try to take that thing away from them, you better watch out because that adorable little curly-headed cherub is about to flip a switch and turn into a demon. <laughs> My daughter Claire is starting to say more and more words, which is super cute because they don't actually sound, I mean, we can translate her, um, you know, but it's hard. Um, but she's starting to communicate with us more and we can understand her more. You know, though, what, what word she says more than any other word? Mine. Mine. It's mine. It mine. It mine. It mine. I'll hear her screaming, one of the other kids crying. I'll run around thinking someone's in peril. And Claire is trying to rip a toy out of her older brother's hand, looking at me like, it mine! My ball, my cup, my book, my blocks. My baby, and on and on and on it goes. Everything in our house seemingly belongs to Claire. Now, as we get older, we're supposed to grow out of this. <laughs> Keyword there is supposed to. Um, we're supposed to grow out of the everything is mine stage. In fact, it's supposed to end at age four. And we, we kind of realize that everything in the world does not belong to us. We have to share things or we're just not going to succeed in life. Um, so for us, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we're, we're not going to be dealing with this for much, much longer. But what's really interesting to me and a little shocking to me is that while most of us don't go around pointing at things saying, it mine, we still act. Even think, whether it's subconscious or not, that 
Everything is ours. This shows up on our commute to work. This shows up in arguments at home. This shows up in disagreements in the office. This shows up in how we make decisions. This shows up in how we schedule our lives. This shows up in how we spend our money. Really, every aspect of how we live our lives, my lane, my rights, my desires, my money, my time, my life, it's mine. We're supposed to grow out of it at four, but I think we just learn how to hide it better. We learn how to mask it. This is why people have a really hard time with Jesus. Because when Jesus sees us, Jesus claims possession. When Jesus points at us, his first word is mine. In fact, Abraham Kuyper, he's famous for this, like the most famous quote that he's ever said. I actually don't know any of his other quotes. This is the most famous quote from his illustrious career, but look at what he said. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's not a square inch in the entire universe, including the most minute detail of your life, that Christ doesn't look at and say, mine. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to have said that they like the idea of God. They really like the idea of Jesus because Jesus is the loving one and he's the kind one and he's the seemingly lenient one in their minds. He's the gentle one, but they can't buy into the idea that he would actually demand anything from them. This is the, the big turnoff to Christianity, that Jesus would actually claim possession and authority over their lives. Uh, so one guy recently heard the gospel, understood it clearly. I could see the light bulb go off in his head, and I was like, this guy is going to follow Jesus. And he said, you know what, Ben, I can't, I can't go all in. I can't do it. I can't give Jesus control of my life. Another guy said that he thought he could give Christ 80% and hold on to 20%. And that's, that's a pretty good ratio, right? If you think about it, 80% of your life is a lot. And he, he told me, man, I'll go to church, I'll read my Bible, I'll be a nice person, but I'm not giving up partying and I'm not giving up sex. That was the 20%. Another girl in our college ministry several years ago, she heard the gospel, she understood the gospel, she made a profession of faith, and then as she started to walk with Jesus and she realized that Jesus cared about her bedroom, she was like, I'm out. She jumped ship. Examples go on and on, but here's the thing, and this is what I want to share with you today. It's not just skeptics, it's not just unbelievers, it's not just people who like, have Jesus at an arm's length that have a hard time giving Jesus everything, is it? I mean, let's just be honest. We all struggle with this. I struggle with this. For example, some of you might be totally fine giving Jesus your pocketbook, saying, like, do with it what you want, but you won't give him your calendar. Time to you is, is yours. You control it. You might be fine writing a check that you give to someone so that they can advance the gospel, advance the kingdom in Charlotte, but you won't lift a finger unless it's doing something to advance your kingdom. Some of you might be totally fine with giving him your calendar, except for Friday and Saturday nights. Those are off limits, right? 
Man, I'll wake up early to worship him on Sundays. I'll, I'll give him a Tuesday night. I'll give him a Wednesday night. I'm going to go to like 10 life groups. There aren't 10 life groups. I'm going to go to every life group in the church. But don't, don't, don't come find me on Friday or Saturday night. That's mine. Some of you are happy to give him your old drunkenness. Some of you are happy to give him the, the sexual morality of your old life, but you hold on to all kinds of other pet sins that you think are flying under the radar. So you might not be doing drugs like you used to, but you'll gossip about everyone who is. You've become so self-righteous. You might be sober, but you've become a cynic. You think cynics have a high place in the kingdom of God? This is another way of saying you've given Jesus all the external things, but you haven't actually given him your heart. I know this is harsh. I'm speaking to myself too. Some of you might be happy to give him your possessions, but you won't give him your relationships. You got no problem being generous with your stuff, but you claim ownership and possession of your kids and of your friends and of your spouse. And I'm going to tell you something again because I know you don't believe me. I struggle with every single one of those things. And so I can very confidently say that you do too because we're all the same. We all have a really hard time with this idea that every single aspect of our lives is his. There isn't a square inch that he doesn't look at and claim as mine. And so we say things like, well, Jesus just isn't like that. There's no way that Jesus could be like that. Jesus wants me to be happy and free. He would never actually expect obedience from me. Jesus would never actually expect submission from me. Jesus is my homeboy. I got a shirt that says it. Jesus Christ superstar. He's just a cool guy. He's fine with the 80-20 split. We're on good terms. And so more often than not, we act like Jesus exists for us. Like Jesus is there to meet our needs. He's there to answer our prayers. He's there to carry out our dreams. Basically, he's there to give us whatever we want. All we have to do is just sign the dotted line and say a prayer and ask him into our hearts. And then we've got the magic genie for life. What I want to show you today, though, is that nothing could be further from the truth. And that's good news for us. And I want you to see that it's good news. He is Lord over all. As the cliche goes, if he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. And it's a cliche because it's true. We say it all the time because it's actually real. And so how does the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, want us to get that from the text I just read to you? Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Well, the answer is wrapped up in this really unique title that Paul gives to Jesus. If you look back at verse 15, I'll show you exactly what I'm talking about. And this is all we're going to talk about today. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's where we're stopping. That's it. That's the title. That's what shows us that Christ has claim over all creation, that he is the firstborn of all creation. See, firstborn... 
It doesn't actually mean firstborn the way that we usually think about it. When I say that Nicholas is my firstborn son, I'm talking about the fact that he came out before Olivia and Claire. I'm talking about chronological order. He's the oldest. He's the first. And that's usually what we mean when we talk about firstborn, right? At first glance, when you read Colossians 1.15, it seems like that's what Paul's saying. Jesus is the firstborn of creation, which means he's the first person to be born in all creation. We're thinking chronologically. And that's actually not true at all. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That's what the Arians believe. They read this text and they say, see, Jesus was the first person who was born. Well, the problem with that is that in the Jewish context, firstborn had a lot less to do with chronological order and a lot more to do with positional and ranking order. So firstborn had to do with status, it had to do with rank, it had to do with an inheritance, it had to do with blessing, and all of these different things. So if you were to read the Torah, um, the firstborn was the one who received elevated rank in a family. Exodus 4, Israel is called God's firstborn which means that they received a special blessing, they received a special inheritance, they were the recipients of his unique love as the firstborn. Were they the first nation to be born? No, of course not. But they ranked first in, in privilege. Psalm 89, the firstborn is actually the name given to the coming Messiah. The Messiah is called the firstborn. Was he the firstborn person in the world? No, of course not. Isaac, was called Abraham's firstborn son. If you read the Old Testament, was Isaac Abraham's first, Abraham's first son? No, Ishmael was. But Isaac was the one who got the blessing. Isaac was the one who got the name. Isaac was the one who got the inheritance. So he was first. He was the firstborn. The same thing happened with Jacob and Esau, the twins. I don't know if you've if you studied the Old Testament. Esau was first chronologically, and Jacob was first in everything else. Jacob was the firstborn son. Even King David. King David is called the firstborn. And yet King David was the youngest of all of his brothers, and he wasn't even the first king of Israel. He was the second king. And yet he's considered to be the firstborn of Israel. So when Paul says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying that Jesus is first in chronology. Jesus is eternal. We saw this last week. He's the image of the invisible God. He had no beginning what he's saying is he's first in position, and that means that all of creation is his. It's his inheritance. He has claim over it. In fact, out of the millions of things that Paul could have specifically named that were his, look back at the text. He starts talking about rulers and authorities and powers. So basically, Jesus rules all of creation but specifically the dominions and the thrones and the rulers and the authorities that all of the Colossians thought were ruling everything. Those are the terms that the New Testament always uses to refer to angels and demons and powers and the spiritual forces that the Colossians were worshiping, that were tempted to worship as well. Paul is saying, listen, Everything that exists in creation exists because of him. He is the king. He's supreme over it. Even all of those other really powerful things. If he's owning those things, he owns everything. That's what Paul's saying here. 
the highest honor, the highest blessing, the highest authority, they all belong to him. That's what that title means. Firstborn means that he is preeminent. Just write that word in your Bible. If you're taking notes, scribble it, circle firstborn, and just write a dash and say preeminent. He's above all things. The question I want to answer today is why? What gives Jesus the right to be the firstborn of all creation? What gives him the right to claim everything is his? I'm glad you asked that question because it's as if Paul knew we were going to ask that question. He anticipates the question because he immediately answers it with three emphatic statements. In fact, right after calling Jesus the firstborn of all creation, he uses this word for, which could be translated because. So he makes this statement. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He knows you're going to ask why. And so he says, because. And then he gives three emphatic reasons why Jesus is such. This is what I want to dive in today. Three reasons Christ reigns supreme over all creation, specifically over our lives. First, Christ is the origin of all creation. Look back at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Pop quiz. How many things were created by Jesus? Okay, good. We got some interacting. This is good. Um, A few things? No. Half of the things? (laughs) That one little atom from which all other things came? Now he created all the things. That means the 800,000 cataloged insects and the billions of species that are in there. The 35,000 species of fish, 6,500 species of animals or mammals. This means that he created the hundred billion stars in our galaxy and the hundred billion stars in each one of the two trillion galaxies that have been discovered up until now. That number's just going up, though. We just keep finding more. Psalm 147, verse 4, he determines the numbers of the stars He gives to all of them their names. From the depths of the Pacific Rim to the heights of Mount Everest, from the caves and canyons of the desert to the waterfalls of the tropics. Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his masterpiece, his handiwork. He created all of it. And this is the point that I want you to see. There isn't a square inch in all of creation that he doesn't claim as his own because there isn't a square inch in all of creation that he didn't think up in his own mind and speak into existence with his own words. He created all of it. And so he can do whatever he wants with it. Now, I get that this is the opposite of everything you heard in high school and college. Okay. Um, I get that this is the opposite 
of what is considered to just be true now. The, the Darwin's theory of evolution has become religious dogma, and it must be adhered to or else. Only loonies believe this stuff. Only religious fanatics believe that Jesus Christ spoke everything into existence out of nothing. Only crazy people believe that everything isn't just some happy accident that came about by chance. I, I preached a whole message on this topic last year. We did a series called The Problem of God. And if you, if you want to get into the science and the reason and the philosophy, go back and listen to that sermon. It's online. We don't have time today to get into all of that. But I do want to just address it because I know everyone's thinking that right now. So in a nutshell, okay, <laughs> very briefly, everything in our world screams intentionality. Everything in our world screams that there was a mind behind it that created it, that thought it. For example, we just think about our bodies. Every single one of our bodies contains 300 trillion cells. Every single one of those cells, we have rods known as chromosomes, and in every single one of those chromosomes, we have genes. And those genes contain all of the information that determines our intellect, that determines our height, that determines our athletic ability, our hair color, or if our hair is going to fall out, um, uh, our personality, on and on it goes. If you were to take the genetic coding in those chromosomes, just out of one of the 300 trillion cells, and you would try to write out the coding that was in one of those cells, it would take 600,000 books to fill it. Guys, if you were to find a message written on a letter, and let's just say the message was Johnny loves Sally, would you think that that message got there by chance? No, of course not. That's not how it works. <laughs> what if you found a message that was complex? What if you found a message that was cohesive, that laid out an argument from start to finish, and it was so complex that it took 300 pages this is called a book. What if you found a book and, and you just thought, wow, that must have just came out of nowhere. What a happy accident. Well, no. If you see a book, you immediately know that there was an author who thought about it and who wrote those words down in a cohesive, complex, really rational way, and now you have this book in your hands, right? See, there's a massive difference between the Rosetta Stone and the stones in your mom's garden. Because the Rosetta Stone has language on it. That stuff doesn't just happen. There's a massive difference between the Grand Canyon and Mount Rushmore. You can go to the Grand Canyon and be like, this is incredible. And you just marvel at what you're looking at. And you're just like, how did this happen? And then you go to Mount Rushmore and you're like, this is incredible. Whoever did that is awesome. You can see the mind behind it. You can see the artist behind it. This is how language always works. This is how art always works. If you were walking by the sea and written in the sand again, that message, Johnny loves Sally. It's my favorite message. I don't know why. And you were walking by that, you wouldn't think, you know what? I bet a crab crawled out of the ocean, picked up a twig, and randomly wrote Johnny loves Sally. Or maybe the waves crashed on the sand, and there was a, sea a seashell here, and there was a, a stingray here, and there was a jellyfish here, and, and a crab here, and, and they all just so happened to create a sentence 
It was a happy accident. No one, no one would do that. No one would think that. It's not how language works. The obvious conclusion, whenever you see a sentence, even if it's as simple as Johnny loves Sally, three words, is that someone had to write it. Guys, the amount of DNA in a tiny amoeba has as much genetic information as a thousand Encyclopedia Britannicas. And one amoeba, and the 300 trillion cells in your body. The message is not three words long. Do you know how, how many characters it is? Three billion. All in perfect order, all in precise order, all making sense, all making us who we are. You know what's really fascinating about all of this? And again, this is just a nutshell. If you want more, there's a sermon. It's on the website from a year ago. The secular scientists who are convinced that there can't actually be a God, like Richard Dawkins and um, Stephen Hawking and Fred Hoyle, they're actually seeing so much evidence for design, and specifically in genes and genetics and DNA. I mean, it's so compelling that they are actually having to admit that there could be a designer. Now, if you've ever read Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins hates God. He's the dawn of the new atheist movement. He exists to basically make everyone, like, I guess, set them free from their shackles of religion and God and into the utopia of atheism. And yet, <laughs> they are having to admit that there was some sort of design. And yet, their faith systems won't let them say it's God. And so, do you know what they say it is? Do you know who the designer was? Do you know who the mind behind the universe is? It can't be God. Do you know who it is? According to Dawkins, aliens. I'm not making this up. I watched an interview with Dawkins not too long ago, and, um, and he's kind of trapped, and he's bumbling, and he's fumbling over his words, and, and he finally just says, I don't know, it's probably just aliens. Aliens are where we all came from. Guys, it, this is intellectual laziness. This is existential apathy. Nothing matters more than where we came from because where we came from determines purpose. It determines morality. You don't know what is good. You don't know what is evil unless you know what something's here for and you don't know what something's here for unless you know where it came from and why it's here, okay? So um, to know why you exist is really important. To say, oh, maybe it was just aliens is apathy. It's existential apathy. It's shocking. To settle for aliens, I mean, the, the immediate question is, well, where did the aliens come from? Who created them? Maybe some more aliens. Okay. What about those aliens? I don't know. Maybe it was like a one little atom that was full of all of the information and all of the coding and all of... Well, where did that come from? It has to go back to an uncaused creator. And this is what I want to show you. Why do people want aliens and not God? Why will they refuse to acknowledge that there could be a God? It's because aliens don't ever try to tell us what to do. And even if they tried to tell us what to do, they'd have no real power or authority. We'd just be like, we're going to get out our guns. We're going to have a war. There's lots of movies about this. We know how to win. It's going to blow you up. 
We're going to fly a, a, a jet right into the gun of your spaceship. I love how N.D. Wilson put it in his book, Notes from the Tilted World, which I, I highly recommend this book. If there are meta-beings or aliens, I put that parenthetical or aliens in there, uh, then they can tell us what to do the same way bullies can, though they have no jurisdiction. They can run our countries like Italian neighborhoods and along the same principles. Do it or get whacked. Bend your knees, slaughter bulls, lick dirt, give us your milk money. But might, even above the human level, does not make right. But a creative God, a God without whom none of this would be, a God who spoke reality into being and shapes it even now, he has authority. The world is his. You are his. The way my words are mine. We're dust spoken from nothing, shaped with the moisture of his breath, named and now living. And that's the problem. Jesus has authority over his creation. He has claim over his creation. He has all of the rights and all of the privileges as the firstborn of all creation because he is the mind that imagined it and he is the word that spoke it out of nothing. Are you following this? He is the origin of creation. Secondly, Christ is the sustainer of creation. Look back at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So who's ruling the world right now? Who's in control right now? Is it the angels? Is it the demons? Is it the rulers and the thrones and the powers? Is it the president? Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it America? No. As one author put it, Jesus Christ is the glue of the galaxies. There's no such thing as natural law. There are just the laws of Jesus that nature obeys. And that is so true. What does it actually mean, though? What does it mean that Jesus is holding everything together? How can this be? And we saw this a couple of weeks ago with his sovereign will, his will of decree, because there's a lot of evil in the world, right? How is it that Jesus is holding all of this together? Doesn't that just make him either cruel or weak? That's part of the reason that Paul mentioned rulers and authorities and thrones and powers. Because who's actually causing the evil in the world? Then. <laughs> who's responsible for just about everything that's going on? Well, obviously us, sin, and us, but it's the demonic forces that are running rampant in our world. And Paul wants us to see that even these beings that have great power are still under the sovereign control of Jesus. He's over them even now. He's holding all of this together so that everything that they do, no matter how bad it is, will be redeemed and will be transformed. And we talked about this two weeks ago or three weeks ago now. The best analogy I could find uh, that explains how Jesus is holding everything together was from J.D. Greer. He shared it several years ago. and It's the analogy of an atom. I'm not a scientist, guys. Um, so I'm going to read most of this and try to make it sound right. <laughs> okay. Um, 
But uh, atoms uh, have been obviously dissected, studied for over a century. Uh, 1920s, 1930s, guys were trying to figure out what in the world is holding all of these things together. Now, the nucleus of a common oxygen atom has eight protons, which have a positive charge, and then eight neurons that have no charge. Ultimately, don't take my word for it, they should be flying apart. They shouldn't be holding together, and yet they do. 1920s, 1930s, scientists discovered that there was this mysterious power there was this incredible, invisible force that was holding these atoms together. And they could see what was happening, but they couldn't explain why it was happening. To this day, they still can't explain why it's happening. They're not sure how it works. Now, I would imagine that there's actually a good answer for it, that there's probably a physical answer for it. There's a scientific, natural answer for it. We, we might find it tomorrow. We might find it in a few years. But the analogy is still a good one. And this is the point. In the same way that there's this invisible and mysterious force holding the atom together, Christ is this mysterious and invisible and incredible force that is holding everything together. He is the center. He is intimately and intrinsically involved in creation. And if he weren't holding it together, it, will, it would fall apart. You know how fast we're flying around the sun right now? And we're spinning. I think it's like Mach 7 or Mach 8. Correct me if I'm wrong. After the service, don't call me out now. It'd be really embarrassing. Um, we don't feel a thing. Uh, we, we are so close to this burning mass just in the middle of the cosmos in perfect orbit. And every single night, the moon comes out and we see it again, it's not because it wasn't there, but it's because we're flying around a, this ball of fire. And then we go to sleep, and then the alarm goes off the next morning, and we're really mad, and we're depressed, and we think, oh no, not another day. <laughs> when in reality, the fact that we just flew around that flaming ball in the universe and we didn't die again, and we didn't get thrown off course again, is a miracle. It's crazy. And so we, we eat our cereal, and we're like, oh man, another day. Another day. <laughs> when in reality, another day is one of the most incredible miracles in the history of my brain. Can't fathom it. God's the one that spoken into existence through his son. He's holding it all together. He's intimately involved in it. He's intrinsically, inextricably involved in it. So much so, guys, that he actually became one of us. So much so that he actually lived among us. So much so that he actually suffered with us. All of the darkness, all of the sin that you and I experience, he experienced all of the cruelty that you've ever experienced, he went through. He died for us so that we could be redeemed and so that he could right everything that had been made wrong with the world. He's holding it all together and yet at the same time he'd entered into it 
to redeem and restore what was broken in it. Guys, this is such incredible news because right now, rulers and authorities and thrones and powers are wreaking havoc on our world. Right now, sinful man, sinful men and sinful women are wreaking havoc on our world. But this is good news because it means that no matter how dark our world gets, no matter how out of control our world might seem, we have peace because we know Christ is working and moving behind the scenes and he's actually going to transform all of it for good. That's why we read Romans 8 at the very beginning, that in everything he is working, even the darkest and the most cruel and the most heinous events in our life for our good and for his glory. To quote Wilson again, in this story, the sun moves. In this story, every night meets a dawn and burns away in the bright morning. In this story, winter can never hold back spring. He is the best of all possible audiences, the only audience to see every single scene. The author who became a character and heaped every shadow on himself. The Greeks were right. Live in fear of a grinding end and a dank hereafter, unless you know a bigger God, or better yet, are related to him by blood. Do not fear the shadowy places. You will never be the first one there. Another went ahead, another went down until he came out the other side. Guys, Jesus has seen every scene. Jesus has carried every shadow. And the fact that he is currently holding everything together means that he has a plan to redeem it all, to turn every night into dawn. It's good news. He's the sustainer of all creation. Finally, Christ is the destiny of all creation. Look back at verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. That word for could be translated toward, which makes that sentence even more dramatic. All things were created by him and toward him. In other words, everything began with him and everything's going to end with him too. All things sprang up at his command and all things will return to him again at his command. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. That's what those words mean. He's the past, he's the present, he's the future. And every single person and every single place and every single thing we have ever touched, seen, heard, smelled, or tasted, he is the end of all of it. One day all things will be placed under his feet, Ephesians 1.22. Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow in his presence and worship him as Lord. That's, that's the end of this story. This is so important for you and I to grasp, guys, because Paul doesn't just want us to understand how we got here. That's important. But he wants us to understand why we were put here as well. What's our purpose? Why did God create all of this? 
Christ doesn't just have authority as the firstborn because he was the power behind creation. He has authority as the firstborn because he is the purpose of creation as well. Everything that exists, exists not only by him, but for him. Which means you and I and everything in the entire universe are here for his pleasure and are here for his glory. Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Talking about the stars and the cosmos and the universe. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of those stars is missing. This is what's really interesting about that passage Isaiah is literally telling us to look up at the heavens and see the stars and marvel at the stars, but he doesn't want us to stop with the stars. He wants us to move beyond the stars and see and marvel at the one who created them and who named them and who knows where every single one of them are and keeps them so secure that not one of them is lost. The masterpiece of the universe was painted so that we might see and so that we might know and so that we might worship the one who painted it, who was Christ. Augustine once said that all of creation is God's smile toward us. Isn't that good? All of creation is God's smile toward us. It's all good gifts that were meant to draw us to him. Everything that you love in nature was given to you as a smile from God to point you to him so that you would see him and be satisfied by him. Imagine that you're going to Disney World with your family. Imagine that you have kids. You can't imagine that. You don't know what that's like. Um, Imagine that you've got three of them and they're crammed in in the back seat of your minivan and you're about to drive eight hours. Um, And you're going to go to Disney World, which is going to be incredible if you like Disney. (laughs) It's a big caveat. I actually hate Disney. I'm sorry. (sighs) I shouldn't have said that. Okay. Um, Imagine that you're going to Disney World. It's incredible. And you've got your kids. And and you're like 60 miles out. And all of a sudden, you see a, a sign on the side of the highway. And it says, Disney World, 60 miles. And you're like, and you, you, you turn that, that wheel as hard as you can. And you almost get in three accidents. And you get to the side of the road. And you, you park your car. And you're like, all right, kids, get out of the car. We're here. You, you get out of the car. And you're like, stand in front of the, stand in front of the sign. I'm going to get some pictures. You have a little picnic, and you eat your turkey sandwiches and your cheese sticks, and you change the diapers and and all of that. And then you pack everything up, and you're like, all right, kids, load back up. Time to go home. (laughs) What? No one ever does that. You don't stop at the sign on the way to Disney World. The sign is there to tell you that you're getting closer to the destination. It's a pointer. It's a marker. That's what creation is. I think about a, a man and a woman standing at the altar. They're facing each other. They're crying. They're laughing. There's some awkward tension in the room. There's a, an awkward pastor trying not to blow it. And the guy gets a ring out and he puts it on 
the girl's finger, and then the girl's like, okay, I'm good. I got what I came for. I got the ring. Everyone can go home now. This is all I really wanted. That would never happen. The ring isn't the greatest gift. The ring is the symbol that points to the greatest gift. Who's the guy who she's about to figure out isn't that great of a gift? (laughs) (laughs) This is what creation was meant to be. A good gift that points us to the even greater gift. Who's the one who's giving it? He is the goal of creation. He created everything so that we could know him, so that we could see him, so that we could love him, so that we could be satisfied by him. It's a sign, and he is the destination. C.S. Lewis put it this way, the created things which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we cling to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing, These things, the beauty, cherished memories from childhood are all good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Here's the tragedy, and this is what I want you to see. (laughs) When we miss the purpose of creation, who is Christ, and we trade the giver of the gift for the gift, and we say, oh, you've given me this great thing, but I'm going to worship this thing instead of you, we actually ruin everything. Most of the time, we think we're holding on to control of our lives. We say, okay, God, you, you created this good gift of sex. In fact, the first commandment in the whole Bible is to have sex. You created this thing. But I'm not going to see you in that. I'm going to hold on to that gift, and I'm going to live for that. You ruin your life. You think you're holding on to control, and you're actually running off a cliff. God has given us this good gift of food and drink. Wine is actually given to delight the hearts of men. And and, and you look at that and you say, well, I love a good burger. Man, I love a good glass of wine. And instead of worshiping the one who gave it to you, you turn those things into God and you become slaves to them. You become addicts. You become enchained to what was meant to be a good thing. We do this with everything. If Christ isn't the purpose, if he isn't isn't seen as the, the reason we exist, guys, we'll live for a gift and ultimately we'll be ruined by it. Gifts, when turned into gods, are like slave masters and they will run you into the ground. Christ is this flower that we haven't found yet. He's the tune that we haven't heard. He's the news from a country we never visited. He is what we were created for, to know, to love, to worship, to enjoy. Jesus is the origin of creation. Jesus is the sustainer of creation, and Jesus is the destiny of all creation. He is Lord of all. The question I want to ask you today is, is he Lord of you?
One day all of creation, even the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers who despise everything about him, will bow at his feet. Will you bow at his feet today? Will you give him first place in everything? First place in your family, in your marriage, in your profession, in your finances. First place in your ministry, in your reading, in your matters of intellect, in your time, in your conversation. First place in your pleasure. First place in your eating. First place in your drinking. First place in your leisure and your athletics. First in what you watch. First in what you listen to. First in what you worship. Will you bow at his feet and make him Lord of your life? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is above all things. So let's live like it this week. Amen.